Hey gang, I'm Nikki LaCroce, and you're listening to Who the Fuck? A show that explores the power of human connection and the profound resilience of the human spirit through compassionate conversations that help you better understand yourself so you can live with the sense of peace, purpose, and joy that you deserve. Each episode offers a safe space for guests to share intimate details of their personal journey and lessons learned along the way as we all seek to answer life's most important question. Who the fuck am I? Hey gang, thanks for joining the conversation. Today I'm sharing the mic with Zane Landon. And Zane is a mental health and disability advocate, queer rights activist, entrepreneur, and as you'll hear over the course of this episode, quite the positive change maker. Zane's also the founder of Positive Vibes Magazine, a digital magazine dedicated to telling authentic stories about mental health, wellness, and inspiration, as well as the founder and president of Landing Dreams PR, a consultancy working with media and mental health advocates. So welcome to the show, Zane. I'm really excited to have you here. Oh, thank you so much for having me again. Yeah, absolutely. I have really been looking forward to this conversation because we wanted to dive into the idea of intersectionality and how there are so many parts of ourselves that we are really embodying every day. And then also the parts of ourselves that we feel the need to expose to people at maybe different times and the process of being part of the queer community and coming out or having a disability and needing to address that in um, your daily or professional or personal lives. So would you share a little bit about what does identity mean to you and how do you identify? Identity is really what makes you up, what makes you up out of your control and also the things in your control. Like for some, they're born just in groups and then there are some that identify that way later and they discover that they were part of this community. That happens all the time. You know, people that don't come out till they're in their thirties and they may not have even realized that they had a queer identity for a long time. I know some people will will go back and say you, some people know when they're a kid, that's not everyone. That really Mm -hmm. is not the case for everyone. And so your identities are always changing. I think identities always shift. And it's not even just that, like you may be born into like a racial group, like I'm Hispanic. My perception of being Hispanic changes all the time, depending on what environment I am in. And as you mentioned, like different contexts and how you show up. And sometimes I'm comfortable sharing I'm Hispanic. Some spaces I am not, because I don't know how people are going to react to that. I don't know if they're going to see me differently. I don't know what the repercussions are or what the support's going to be. And I want that support, but who knows if I'm going to receive it. So to me, that's what identity is. It's like, what makes you up? And I think that, you know, you have social identities, like your like gender, nationality, disability, veteran status, all those that, you know, again, impact you. But again, there's other forms of identity that we should focus on, like your name. Like your name is your identity and that's incredibly important. Things like pronouns are becoming, you know, more in the mainstream conversation about why we use people's pronouns, why we introduce ourselves that way, because that is aligned with someone's social identity. Again, some of these identities aren't important for some people. Um, like my pronouns aren't important to me because I use he, him pronouns. They're not going to be important. Like someone who wants to be referred to as what their pronouns are. You know what I mean? And yeah, then definitely. when they're when they're not being called those pronouns, that kind of, that identity that they have is like someone being taken away because they're not being validated or kind of recognized in existence. 
So my gender isn't super important to me, but for some it is. My disability is incredibly important to me. And for some, their disability isn't. And I think we have to look at it that way. Because sometimes we look at people and we say, these are identities and you should care about all of them. But you have to understand that not every identity they hold um, is important to them. Then that is actually going to shift how they see the world, how they vote and all these different things. I don't think we should be looking at people like boxing them in. Look at them for who they are and their intersectionality and their background. That's how I feel about that. I really think intersectionality is like this synergy connection we have. Synergy is like many parts making a greater whole. And that's exactly what you are. You have one identity and that's great, but then you have other identities and all those identities together are great and they create a great system that's you and they create an amazing person. So that is what intersectionality is to me, is like the different parts that make you up and they maybe um, hold different levels of importance to you. I also think that when we look at the scope of the world and different people, we look at them and say intersectionality is we all have these identities, but we also have to recognize we all bring a different dynamic to the table. And so someone who's like me, even someone who's remotely close to me, like someone who is queer, Hispanic, or has a disability, we're both going to think very differently. Mm -hmm. or, we might think similarly, but we're going to have very different experiences still. And so we have to look at that. And that's why when we look at storytelling in the media, we have to look at, that's great. You have this one character. That's great. You have this one underrepresented character. But again, <laughs> intersectionality is so important that there's so many varying degrees of that person's story and that group's story. You look at one community and it's everything. Like you have a queer character in a TV show. That's great. But again, queerness affects so almost every identity. It's like, do you have people of color? Do you have people with disabilities that are queer? Do you have people who are women who are queer? Like, are you showing the real diversity of that community? Because again, it's one thing to say we have diverse characters. You got to take it to the next step too. You got to go, we need even more diversity to a point where we're actually telling the stories of underrepresentation. But what about the different dynamics within that underrepresentation? That's a so really that's good point. And I think that what you really touch on is there's a lot of applause for having more representation in media, especially these days. And at the same time, it's a little underwhelming for those of us in some of these communities because you're like, great, I'm so glad to see there's a queer couple, but their experience doesn't reflect my experience. And so if you're somebody who isn't familiar at all with a community that is underrepresented and the only frame of reference you have is this one storyline or this group of people and this very specific angle. It's hard because I think a lot of times what ends up happening is people who are really not exposed to different cultures, whether that's queer culture, whether that's a racial cultural difference or anything, disabilities, things like that. These diverse identities are not just, you know, one size fits all. And I think it's a little underwhelming and disappointing, if I'm being honest, when people act like having just a fraction of that represented is so amazing. Yes, it's great that finally we have some representation, but it also uh, discounts the importance of really doing the research to ask if that's truly representative for a group of people that can feel connected to that. And one of the things that I always talk about is how I feel like the plot lines for, or not even just the plot lines, but movies, especially lesbian films, they're just like so disappointing. The acting's not as good. The plots aren't good. 
And I sit there and I think like, why can't we have a cinematic masterpiece about some lesbians here? You know, like I guarantee you somebody could execute this well, but it just feels like the energy and the desire to create this sense of connection to those storylines doesn't exist in the same way because it just hasn't been consistently done and hasn't evolved the same way typical film has with like a heteronormative relationship, even to the point where it's like, I am sure that in my lifetime, I've watched far more films centered around probably white or generic sort of neutral relationship dynamics. And it doesn't tap into the fact that a lot of relationships are multicultural now. And the fact that people are meeting from all different races and the gender identities in which people are establishing friendships, romantic relationships, things like that. We're still existing in this space in the media that really leans first and foremost into what people are used to. And it's about finding those entry points to insert these new storylines and give people who haven't been exposed to that a chance to really understand the core of those relationships and not just checking the box to say, oh, look, we have a diverse cast. Oh, look, we made sure that we included somebody who's underrepresented. It's nice, but it's not enough. And I don't mean to sound dismissive, but it's also, you know, I think part of what we have to advocate for. It's not dismissive. And I think that it's actually important to have that critical element because it is a good thing, but again, there's always room for improvement, especially in this area where it's been so unexplored, like you said, but no, because that's where echo chambers are happening. And so if you're going to have a movie that you produce and you have one queer character and everyone in the cast is going, this was amazing. You're only looking at the positive reviews. You're not understanding that this is great. It's great though. It is. But like, you have to understand, like, if you're going to do more movies, there's more to explore there. And so I think that it is a good angle to have because you don't want to get stuck in that echo chamber where it's like, we're, we did so well. We did so much for queer rights. And it's like, you did one aspect and nothing, not dismissing that, but it's like, there is more you can do. And you should find that exciting, actually, because you saw success here, right? So if you even take that further, you might see more success. Yeah, um, yeah. That's there, a really good point. Yeah, there's a market there that really wants it. And what I don't like, though, it also is I really dislike when queer representation it's not queer representation than like people think it is. Like I am a huge fan of the game Dead by Daylight it is a really fun horror game. And there's this one character, David King, who's been in the game for a long time. And it was like a couple months ago, they came out and said he is gay. And I'm like, no, like, why is he gay? So you wanted to get diversity brownie points. So you labeled him as gay. And it's like, why didn't you do that from the very beginning when you wrote his story? Like his story has nothing even to do with being gay. So it doesn't even do anything. If you wanted to make him gay, you could have done a whole little backstory of how he was with some guy or something. And the little narrative that you write about each character. And it's like, you could have done that, but you didn't. So you wanted to slap on the gay identity. And then all these people were cheering it on. It's like, you don't get queer representation because that's not representation. Yeah. It's not authentic representation. That's like, um two things like oh we were scared people weren't going to react good back then now we're going to label it now and it's like i get that but like i don't think that was the case because this game isn't that old you know it's not like it was in the 80s it's like this came out like a couple years ago this game like in 2016 or 2017 so i don't think that would have been the case just slapping an identity on someone when you probably originally wrote that character as straight right mm -hmm. so i find it interesting like when you see like when like like gay swaps happen or different swaps happen with different characters it's like you're still there's characters still being filmed from a point of view of a racially neutral person mm -hmm. so it's like 
you may have swapped them and you may have a queer person now, but it's like you, the original intent was that they were straight. So the yeah. story is still coming from a straight point of view. Does that make sense? Like it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. 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 I actually, I really appreciate that more than I probably could have if I hadn't watched the show Mythic Quest on Apple TV. It's a comedy, but the premise is um, about game developers and sort of the visionary behind it. And they talk a lot about the narratives of the characters and they have like a renowned sci-fi author who does these narratives for the people in between. And so um, I probably wouldn't have had as keen of a frame of reference for what you're speaking to if I hadn't seen this show. And so I'm glad that I do because you're right. This, I think, applies in a lot of ways um, in societies. I like the way you said it. Like, you can't just slap on an identity for, for diversity brownie points. Diversity brownie points is like such a, a clutch way of referring to it because I worked in HR tech for a long time. And so hiring at companies, you have to do a lot for compliance and you have to make sure that you have representation. But see, the problem with that is that their representation is by asking you to self-identify as disabled, a veteran, queer, whatever your race is, right? And you can opt out and you can say, I prefer not to answer. As somebody who's Caucasian, I have these moments where I'm like, sometimes I'll say it. Other times I'm like, I prefer not to say because I don't really think it matters in the grand scheme of things when you're trying to hire people. I think that it's important to have that diversity, but I think doing it in that way is essentially catering the result that you want. So you can sit there and look at it and go, okay, great. We've met our quota for hiring Hispanic people. We've met our quota for hiring African-American people. Check, check. We've met our quota for hiring veterans. Like it just feels really... It's great that people are getting the opportunity, but it also feels like it's acting like you deserve a pat on the back for something that you should just be doing. And you should be able to hire people um, or tell stories about people based on the significance of either their skill set or their story instead of trying to cater to what the broader expectation is when it comes to being compliant or trying to make sure you don't lose an audience because you want them to feel like they're represented. And instead of really doing the work to understand how you can make that more integrated into what you do, you're like, well, now this person's gay. Now this person's whatever label you want to put on there. And it doesn't make up for the fact that you didn't create the environment around that to make people feel seen or heard in that process. Well, that's why, yeah, there's a great difference between diversity, inclusion, and belonging because what they're doing in a way is like a checkmark diversity list. Mm-hmm. And you want to do it that way. You want to make sure that you're getting the, you know, the the best, most authentic people for the job itself. And again, if you're looking at it as a check mark and you're ticking boxes off, it's like you're not even doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is not you've got people at the table. Congratulations. You give them an opportunity. Are they going to stay long because the organization is not inclusive? Probably not. And so if you're wondering why we need to hire, you know, people of color that keep leaving, why are they leaving? Yeah. <laughs> like really think critically on like what the trends are, your tensions and or, or employees and retention. If a lot of people are leaving, it's not a reflection of them. It's probably a reflection of the organization. And you really need to be thinking about that and you should not come from that point like no we're a great organization if people are leaving that means your organization is probably going to be start dying because you're losing out on great employees because the ones you have are leaving and they're going somewhere else and that's why great resignation happened because people kind of woke up to i don't want to be treated like this in the workplace anymore and i don't want to work under these conditions and a lot of people liberated themselves and did that and i'm glad that they 
you know, hopefully found a better place where they can work. And I think that, I think a lot of people can be disconnected from their work. What I mean is like, they can disconnect themselves from the work. Like I can do my job and I'm going to go and live my life. And it's like, I understand that because that's how you think. I don't <laughs> because I'm at work almost 45 hours a week or 40 hours a week. It's like, how do I stay disconnected from the work? Like my job is my life. Mm-hmm. I know some people don't think of it that way, but yeah, part of my identity is my work. Like, you know, my work identity, like where I work, I'm proud of it. It's my identity because I'm there so much. Um, and then of course that's going to change if I ever leave or something, but like, yeah, like since we're at work so much and like, I think a large chunk of our life is there. We have to make sure that we're always creating these equitable opportunities. Um, if that's making sure that people with diverse voices, not just have jobs, but do they have senior level jobs? Are they on board of directors? Do they actually have a voice at the leadership level? Cause it's, it's, again, it's nice to have people who have diverse voices, but if we're seeing them only in entry-level, mid-level roles and not senior level, how diverse is the company and all the actual things coming out of the company, it's not coming from a diverse lens. Yeah. So all that's going to trickle down to the people working and they can't do anything. They can react to it, but they, they have no power in changing it. It's okay. interesting that you say that because it really just makes me think about representation overall and in government as well and how we make such a big deal out of it when there's a person of color who's gotten a role. There's a person um, who has a different gender identity who has taken on a certain role in government. I mean, honestly, I look at our current vice president and I remember sitting with my sister and being really excited to see a woman of color in the seat as vice president and now having conversations with my wife about, but like, what, what are we seeing from that? And it's not to just, I mean, partially, I guess it is discrediting it. It's like you have this platform and you were applauded for getting there based on these identities. And that was sort of that, you know, you came into this position and that was the role you played. And now we're not really hearing much about what you're doing to elevate the fact that that was a really monumental thing that happened. And so needing to not just get people in those seats, but make sure that the people who are in those seats are really talking about the things that need to be talked about and that they're using their voices and their positions and their platforms to spark conversations that might make other people uncomfortable and really force people to look inward and ask ourselves, are we supporting the growth of our business, our country, whatever it might be? So anybody could come in here and feel like they have a place. And I don't think that we're doing a good job of that in an overarching way in society, whether it's governmental or um, or business related. It's like, we're trying to chip away at it ever so slowly and delicately because we don't want to ruffle feathers instead of like really owning the fact that we do have such a diverse group of identities for each individual person. Like even as a cis white female, like I am, I'm queer and I have mental health issues and I have a variety of other things that I could claim as identities for myself. And at the end of the day, I don't want to be discounted because I'm a white lady right? Like I want to be able to talk about the other things that really matter. And so trying to find, I think sometimes where that intersectionality is the most relevant for people can be really 
an opportunity for us to sort of say, okay, maybe I got the attention because I kind of fit whatever the generic thing is that they're looking for. But I, what can I do to like maintain not only the attention, but also help educate people and grow the mindset around facilitating more inclusion and belonging? And I think the way you facilitate more inclusion and belonging is recognizing that people are more than their identities and that you have to recognize the person too, because I did see that where people do celebrate people on what they achieve, but mostly on their identities, which I don't, I don't think that's a good thing because I'll see headlines like um, first queer person to do this. And that's great. But it's like, I don't even know anything about them. You didn't even put their name in the byline. You put their identities first because that's what people are going to gravitate to. And I don't know if that's a good thing. I'm, I'm not saying it's um, a bad thing. It's a good thing that, you know, a queer person accomplished this, but it's like, we look at that first and not even the person. Yeah. So, that's a really good point, Zane. And I, think, I, think I see that. And it's, it's a little problematic. Cause like, again, I don't want a headline to ever be about me where it's like queer Hispanic person accomplishes this. I'm like, no, I did put my name. You can learn about my identities in the article. Yeah. Because <laughs> I know that I know that headline's gonna get clicks because I posted about my graduation. I put this is what a queer, disabled, Hispanic graduate looks like. And it got the most traction I ever got on LinkedIn. <laughs> and it got a lot of traction more than a lot of graduation posts. And I was like, it's because of that. Yeah. And I, and I'm, I'm happy that people are celebrating diversity. Like it's exciting. But it's also like. Is that really what people saw is just that when I posted that, they even read my posts about what I accomplished and also the barriers I had to experience. And I know people that celebrate people's diversity, but they don't even challenge them where they'll go. This person in politics is a person of color and they're, and they're amazing. I'm like, well, what'd they accomplish? They can mm-hmm. Well, you're right. Because it's like, how much value is somebody's identity adding if there's no substance to what they're actually trying to achieve um, and are they even trying to achieve something or are they just there as a figurehead? And I, I worry about that from the standpoint of, you know, how to educate people more on the things that really matter um, because I feel like it's a missed opportunity to have representation and not use that. Like, use it better be more mindful of why it's important not just that it happened and now we like you said we check the box and it's done and over with like no you are now in that position so what are you going to do with that because if you're the first person to get into one of these positions or even if you're the second or fifth or tenth it doesn't matter like you now have an inherent responsibility if you're deciding to take that on to figure out how you can continue to spread awareness and really help people understand how we can work together more effectively. And in my mind, if we, it's like, we need to acknowledge the identity side of it to make sure there's representation, but it's like, once there's representation, you kind of want those things to be less of the focal point and figure out how you get those varieties of identities to work together and create more meaningful change across the board yeah and that's yeah and i and i do somewhat feel for some people that are into or do become these leaders because i think sometimes they might get tokenized where it's like they're in a position and they're the first queer person it's like they gotta solve every queer issue it's like no you could of course advocate for generally but you know what i mean yeah it's like you don't want to put the pressure on them that they have to solve everything because they won't (laughs) and because it's a huge robust issue that that's incredibly difficult 
The last thing about my thoughts on this, I think that's how you create a really welcoming environment is despite what you think, despite the biases you hold, because I think we hold every single person. Yes. I think every single person holds biases against everyone based on how they're raised, how they perceive people, who they're around, what they watch, every single thing. Of course we have a bias. I mean, of course, sometimes you may only interact with those people occasionally, or you're only going to watch content about them on TV. So it's like, you're going to have a biased point of view. Doesn't mean it's a terrible point of view. Doesn't mean it's wrong. It's bias. That's it. So that's the thing, yeah. right? It's like there is inherent bias, period. Full stop. Yeah. That's just the way that it goes because that's how our brains work. That's how our bodies are configured, even to the point where part of the reason that we have racial or identity conflicts from a really primitive perspective where it's like we seek to be around people that identify similarly to us just even visually and thinking about sort of the origin of civilization and humanity and going really deep back like those biases biases exist because it was like you are safer with the people that you know in your immediate family and then the community of people around that you're also safe with them to some degree but the more you expand that and the more people start to look different sound different do different things behave different ways you start to feel less of a sense of safety because it's more, uh, it's just different, right? And so I feel like a big part of what creates these wedges in society and the way that we identify is because people have either they're blissfully ignorant or willfully ignorant. And I think educating people is such an important part of helping create more representation and also take kind of the pressure off the identity of it and more making it, as you said, about the person. So I'm curious in your experience, uh, because you've, you've been able to really speak out about your, your intersectionality, about being disabled, about being queer, about being Hispanic. Do you have feelings on how we can better educate people about really creating more community where we're bringing together the variety of identities and learning to leave behind the stigma that we apply to those things before we have a chance to actually get to know each other? I will say that I think one of the things that we should do is welcome the conversation and also not frame it that this person's a bad person because of their beliefs. I mean, if they're not being like inherently racist or something, that's different. Like, I get it. But like, if they just don't know and they still hold some of these biases, have that conversation. I think just inviting that. And again, if they still don't want to learn or they don't want to engage, that's your cue. That's where you know that you don't want to, you don't have to put your energy into this person. You shouldn't have to. I mean, you're, you're doing your part. You do it. You're trying to help them and so that they can understand. And so you can also understand them because I think it's a two-way street. Like you educate them, they kind of educate you on how they believe, not necessarily like this official education moment, but like you're both sharing a perspective where you're gaining more insights. And I think also what you said at the beginning, that's so easy though. And I think that's also why in queer spaces and all spaces, there is that, that feeling of this is a safe place. Like you said at the beginning, I think there's difference between a safe environment and also just being in this enclosed safe space. So what I mean, mm-hmm. is like I've been in many queer communities where it is very clicky and it feels very discriminatory with race or even like biphobia. I've heard it from different queer people. And it's like, why are you all kind of thinking this way? It's because you all kind of create an echo chamber because you all find safety here. But when someone new wants to come in, you're kind of resistant. 
you're treating me like a virus that, you know, you want to eject um, or reject. And so I think we have to be careful. Like it can go like always. Like that's why it's like we have to be careful. Like the very beginning where we have biases, where we stay with our family. And also when we find a new family, if it's a queer space, we have to be careful that we make sure that we're being open and inclusive to people around that space and welcome them in. I know it's hard though, because like you found your core, you found your community and it's, that's so validating, but it's like someone else might need that too. And it's not fair. It's not fair for you to treat them how you've been treated. And I feel like it can be a system. Sometimes people who are treated a certain way, they don't realize they're treating other people that way. And you forget even like relationships, let's say like your family always yelled when you were growing up, you might see that as healthy. And so that may be how you communicate with your partner It may not be healthy, but because you have a skewed version of what relationships are, sometimes when people can experience hardship and trauma, sometimes they accidentally put it on other people without Mm -hmm. really, without even really knowing it. So you have to be really critical. And I think like in those spaces, try to get out of those echo chambers and I get, they feel so safe and empowering, but you might exclude other people that really need to be in that space. And that's why you hear about the queer spaces being racially exclusive and sometimes a lot of these queer events aren't even like accessible for someone who was using a wheelchair that's really bad that's a basic thing like a lot of these pride events i'll see it's like in areas where it's really inaccessible and you got to think about those things when you're picking a venue you need people at the table who are making those decisions yeah so that they understand like no we need a venue that's accessible because you may not get that it's not your lived experience and even if it's not you should be aware but they're going to understand from their point of view in that regard so that's what i would say like those are ways that we can combat that. Always questioning and challenging. Even if like you're in a group and everything's positive, why is it always positive? But that could be, you're kind of falling into that whole group think mentality. Well, I think like, that's a really good point, Zane, because it's like without controversy, controversy doesn't have to include animosity. It can be an educated or informal discussion around what our beliefs are, what our sense of self is, how we relate to each other. And if you come at it, as you were saying, as objectively as possible, I feel like that's how you can get the results. If we lead with the emotional part of it, it can be challenging. It's not to say that we shouldn't apply our emotions to those conversations. I think passion is really important in those conversations. I think curiosity is really important in those conversations. But if we are coming from a place of defensiveness or offensiveness, then we're not going to have a really productive conversation. That's when people get really combative and they lose sight of like, well, why are we even having this discussion? And I can speak to that from just conversations I've had in my own life. Um, even with my my dad, since losing my mom, he and I got in this argument and I about politics and I was just like, my initial reaction, and this is, it's interesting because you were saying, you know, the way that we're raised and how things impact the way we respond. It's like, my dad can be really chill and he can also like lose it. And so that's something that I've worked on in therapy to make sure that I'm better at how I handle my emotions. Because if I feel like somebody's escalating, then I escalate. And I remember just having this moment with him and being like, I'm 37. Like, I don't care how you feel about this right now in the way that you're projecting to me, what I want to do is be able to have a reasonable conversation with you. But it like took me getting to that point of being heightened to be able to zoom out and be like, I don't like the way either of us approach that. He said the same thing. And to be able to be like, okay, well now we can have a productive conversation. It doesn't mean that you're all of a sudden going to believe what I believe, or I'm going to believe what you believe. 
but at least we can have the conversation like two intelligent adults who aren't just like throwing things at each other um not literally but like hurling hurling our um very subjective opinions at each other without leaving space for that other person to share what they think and why they think it um because we have to create that open discussion to be able to move forward in society and give people a chance to elevate those discussions if they're only ever fights nobody's ever going to be like you know what that's a really rational point you've just offended me greatly like you have to come at it from a perspective like, well, how could I possibly help this person understand what I think? Wow. What's interesting is I, I personally think that what's the most important thing is how you make people feel. And so I've been in places where the disability community is where I found a lot of support in. And I remember joining a disability organization. And I didn't know that was when I really didn't know much about it. I didn't realize that I had a disability. And the reason why I stayed was because of how I felt. And I felt so empowered as an ally at the time that I wanted to stay. And I think that's the most important thing is how can you make people feel like their best selves that they can stay? And because, and then I'm also in other communities where I don't identify, where I'm in a community of people who identify as African-American. I'm like, I don't identify with either any of you because I don't have that experience, but I feel supported here. I'm going to stay. That is how you keep that is how you you really build amazing allies. Because I have been in spaces where I was an ally and I just got heated on just because I was the different identity. And it's like, that's not fair. I don't, I don't hold that baggage because I'm just a different identity. I've never done anything to you. Uh, I'm actually here to learn. And again, if you're not making people feel welcome, you don't have to always be like so nice to people, but as long as you're inviting them and recognizing them as a person. Um, but like, yeah, then I, I left those communities. And I, I didn't, I probably could have learned a lot more, but I didn't want to experience that animosity that I experienced. And it wasn't like really bad, but I was just getting, I was getting dirty looks, uncomfortable conversations. I was like, I don't really want to be in this space. And also people were assuming what I was thinking because I was coming from a perspective. I'm like, I don't even believe that. And you're assuming I believe certain things. Like you're not even letting me talk and have the conversation. It's not a space for me. Well, I think um, to your point, what's interesting too, Zane, is the idea that we have the choice to stay or go in those circumstances. If you recognize that you have the opportunity to go in and see how it makes you feel. And if you don't like how it feels, you don't have to continue to be there. And being able to set boundaries for yourself in that regard, I find to be really empowering as well. And I understand what you mean. When I was in college, I felt like the queer community, the lesbian community was really, really clicky. And it also... Yeah, it felt like I want to have queer friends, but I want to not feel like I'm being forced into friendships with people that I don't relate to just because of our queer identity. And that's one of the things that uh, my wife and I literally were just talking about yesterday. We were saying, you can... You might not identify as a specific identity, but that doesn't mean you can't identify with a right. specific identity, like that you can't relate to somebody who has that identity. So how do you bridge the gap in those understandings or relatabilities to be able to have those more tender moments that really give you that sense of belonging? And I, I love that you said the thing that you care most about is the way that you make people feel. And I, I relate to that so much. It's something that growing up, 
I really lacked a sense of belonging. And honestly, I think part of that was a lack of belonging within myself. I would say I'm one of those people who knew since I was younger, I look back on, I'm like, I was nine. I remember the moment that I could probably be like, yep, I, I recognized it, but I didn't acknowledge it. And I held it in and it made me feel really isolated within myself. And, you know, as kind of a segue into the topic of mental health, which I know is really important to both of us, like, there is a massive, massive intersection between like these parts of our identities and our mental health, because if we don't feel seen, heard, accepted, or like we belong, then we are so prone to internalizing that. And if you don't have the tools or the community to help support you through that, how do you even begin to really understand who you are at your core and what it is that you can contribute, not only to the um, yourself, but also to other people in, in terms of sharing that experience. Do you feel like there's been sort of an evolution between the way that you have come to identify and how that impacts or maybe is impacted by your mental health? Yeah, I will share that. I think people have to understand when it comes to mental health, every issue is a mental health issue. And I'll see posts that go, this is a mental health issue. This is not a mental health issue. Every issue is a mental health issue. If you're going to experience homelessness, if you're going to go through a shooting, which I'm very sensitive in saying that because people have right now. And a lot of the times, if you've gone through that, how does it not impact your mental health? So we have to look at every single social issue is about mental health. Not merely the self-focus, but mental health is going to play a huge factor. So we have to look at mental health from a very holistic point of view that like everyone and almost everything is impacted by mental health. If you've gone through discrimination, if you've gone through being hungry, if you've gone through being rejected, <laughs> I mean, there's mm -hmm. so many things that you go through that impact your mental health. And that's why every identity is going to experience it. That's why it's very interesting. Like, even though there's not a lot of research of the intersections of having like a disability and mental health, which I'm like, how does that not correlate? Come on. Like, why, why is there not a lot of research when, if you're neurodiverse, like I'm neurodiverse and you are struggling in school and you have trouble making friends, how's that not going to impact who you are? And you're going to internalize it. And you're going to think there's something wrong with you. Yes. And it's going to make you feel worse. And you know what happens for some, they're just going to block off people even more. And they're not even going to want to engage. It creates this whole cycle where it started with that support wasn't there, which, you know, and how do you make them feel valued and also providing the actual physical resources so they can actually be at an equitable level like their peers. And I did get that through, you know, um, elementary school when I was on like a 504 plan for my disability. And so, but it was difficult. And I, I felt like I, didn't know how to talk about it. And I didn't really know what mental health was. And I started experiencing mental health from a very young age. I remember just being a very sensitive, angry kid <laughs> where I, I appreciate you sharing that, you know, you've lashed out. Cause like, I feel like we are afraid of that. I feel like it's very, I know like there's a lot more conversations that need to happen about mental health, but I still think a lot of the ones that we hear are, I'm really depressed. I'm really sad. And I'm like, what about the people who are angry? Where are the people who have like really intense anger? Especially those people, because the, it's like the people who are angry are holding on to something that, at least in my experience and what I understand about anger and fear is for me, that manifests very physically. And I would, when I was in um, the past relationship I was in, it was very psychologically abusive and I would be constantly told that I was overreacting while I'm getting gaslit. So that's like a whole other thing where it's like my my anger has always been impulsive. And so 
needing to be able to stop for a moment before I react has been an evolution, believe me. And I remember going into therapy one day and being like, I don't want to react this way anymore. I don't like it. I don't like how it makes me feel. And the thing was, is I was able to really recognize that it wasn't productive. It wasn't useful for me to feel that type of rage. It was just, I had no idea what to do with it. I didn't know what to do with the energy that was like coursing through me when I was feeling angry. And so it was like, I had a punching bag at the house. I could go and I could go hit that if I just need to get some energy out. I, you know, people scream into pillows. Like, you know, there's ways to do it. But I said to my therapist, I was like, it's, I, I know if I just had a split second to ask myself if that was really how I wanted to react, that I wouldn't react that way because never have I come out of reacting that way, feeling good about myself or feeling good about how I treated somebody else when I was like that. So I think it's important because a lot of the people who are carrying out these really terrible acts. Um, and yes, some of the more violent ones, like you just mentioned, and then also just the people who are controlling things in hateful ways from the top too. It's like that, that is anger. That is fear. That is internalized hate that you can't express appropriately. So yeah, depression, anxiety, I've dealt with those things. I have dealt with PTSD. So I understand the importance of addressing that. And I also, as you said, it's not just the intersectionality of the identities and mental health. It's also the comorbidity, the common nature of comorbidity of mental health issues with people who are part of the queer community, people of color, people with disabilities, et cetera. And starting to frame it as like, we are all people. And as people, we have identities and these identities based on what they are, could have a higher likelihood of having these mental health conditions. And so we need to be aware of that so we can understand what we need to unpack for ourselves. And then as a society, what do we need to do to help educate people so we can expand that knowledge? And it goes beyond also recognizing that these certain identities are going to have these um, like comorbidities because why is that the case? We're all people. We all experience, we all should, biologically, a lot of us are experiencing things the same way, you know, like not necessarily perceive things, but let's say, because like the highest queer communities of that mental health conditions are bisexual and transgender. Is it because they're biologically different? No, it's because of how they're socialized in society. So we have to look at it that way. It's like, again, like, why does this, why does this happen? And then recognizing that this is what can happen also why. And I think, again, this is what we talked about last week, but it was like, the reason why I really feel that like bisexual and like pansexual communities as well as trans communities are going to be the ones that are most susceptible to mental health conditions and issues is because they do not feel visible, that their identities really do feel stripped, especially when we have an easy time recognizing the binary of sexuality and gender. But when there's something like a pansexual or a transgender, it's like, it's like we can't understand this floatiness that um, identity can move around. And again, I, as I said at the beginning of the interview, identities always change. Mm-hmm. You should always look at how they're changing and how people are perceiving these identities. So like, yeah. So like with the biphobia and like transphobia, it's like they're being told that like, like they exist. Um, but I think people are denying their identity. And yeah. I get that they may not it feels this way. 
Um, like if someone were to say that to me, it's like, you're not acknowledging me. You're not saying I don't exist. Like you obviously know I exist. You're not saying that, but like you're denying the existence of a part of me though. And again, all the parts make up who I am. Mm-hmm. So you're not necessarily denying my existence. This is just my opinion for me. Like I, you're not denying my existence. Cause I know I exist. You know, I exist. But you are denying a core piece of me. Um, yeah. And it's not fair. And it really, it really makes me feel like I'm not validated in that space. And I think that's why those communities really do experience that because they're told all, all the time, especially from their own communities, that the binary exists or that there's no such thing as bisexuality. It's like, well, then what am I experiencing then? I'm like, what am I, what am I experiencing? And they're like, well, you're just confused or you have to choose a side. And I'm like, do you not understand how problematic that is? And if you're a queer person, <laughs> I did not expect this coming from you. And that's where it hurts even more because you like what if i told you that what, what like if it's a queer person or it's lesbian just say guys why not i mean well like, i mean people say that though you know they're like i know they do and that's why it's like i hate that it comes from queer people because they know that this has been said against them so it's like but i get it people are people and they hold those biases still but it's like again recognize those damn biases mm-hmm. and, and also like if you do have a bias come to a place of not such like strong opinions like you know your opinion's not the only valid one and like you said a long time ago like it's like i don't want to be left out because i am i have these identities i also have these other underrepresented identities we have to understand that each person has value i think every person has value and they bring something to the table just because they don't have a lot of intersectional identities and again it depends on the ones like someone could look at themselves and be like oh i'm a white guy but oh i've been homeless at one point social mm-hmm. status is different they have mental health, they have a disability. It's like, you still hold like a, a good, like diverse perspective. Not because you have a lot of, not because you have a lot of identities, but because you just, you have this different perspective. So it's like, just because you have some of these identities that we, that are dominant, that doesn't mean that you don't have an opinion and that your opinion isn't valid. That's why I don't want people to experience is like, they hold certain dominant identities, but then like, they actually will like censor themselves. So they're like, well, it's not my place to speak. I'm like, you have a mental health background. You have a disability background. You have a reason to speak. You are important. And, and you're entitled. You, you're entitled to share your experience. Like your experience matters and, and your experience contributes to your perspective. And so to your point, I, thank you for letting me interject. I I feel like one of, no, I feel like one of the things that it really makes me think about too is, you know, having friends of mine who are like, well, I'm a cis hetero male, you know, I don't feel like I can speak on this. And it's like, I'm not trying to invalidate you and your opinion just because you were born into this gender and this sexuality. It would be really wildly hypocritical to to be like, your opinion doesn't matter because these things aren't like all of the other people who have different experiences. It's more like, are you a person who is self-aware who understands how your experiences have contributed to the way that you show up in the world and the way that you think about things. And are you open-minded enough to question that if you were presented with new information based on other people's experiences? And if you're not open-minded, as you said, like that's where the line gets drawn. It's not my responsibility to force it down somebody's throat to be more accepting. But I do feel an inherent responsibility as a human being, regardless of identity, to try to help people understand one another because you cannot be empathetic if you don't understand. And so I've been saying really recently quite a bit, 
if nothing else, can we just seek to understand one another? I'm not asking you to change your mind. I'd like for people who are more hateful to have more light and love in their hearts for others who are not like them. But at the very least, listen, just listen and then see what you feel. And also like treat people with respect and validate them, even if you don't believe it, it's fine. I mean, I think that is fine. You know what? If you don't believe in me as a queer person, you don't think it's right. If you treat with respect, I really don't care. You're right. You're right. We can still live together or live together. We could still coexist together and we could even have a friendship. We just want to talk about that. It can be Um, harmonious as long as you have mutual respect. And I agree with that completely. And I feel that way when people are constantly coming you know, from a place of hate around whether it's like queer identity or just even as a female, especially with just the way certain rights are being stripped away. It's like, why do you believe what you believe? You know, why do you feel like this direction that we're going is the right direction? And are you listening to the people who are challenging that? Because I watched a video of a guy on TikTok who I think actually ran for office. I can't remember what state he was in, maybe Tennessee basically saying he grew up in a very small community, very religious in the Bible Belt. And essentially his perspective on humanity was shaped by that. And for whatever reason, I can't, he didn't really explain why, but he had somehow started paying attention to more progressive politics. And he said, you know, so I decided to run for office. And the way that I did that was I went into the communities that I wasn't part of. I went to the queer communities. I went to the black communities around me and I asked them questions about their lived experience because he said, I don't believe that you can do that and not change your perspective. Because if you can feel what that experience is like for somebody else as best you can, if you can understand it and then have empathy for it, you wouldn't be so hateful because you would never want to feel that way. And it was just really beautiful to hear somebody who had been so convinced otherwise to speak so openly about I was wrong and it's okay to acknowledge that you are not a bad person or a failure for acknowledging that your thoughts have changed even to your point identities throughout our lifetime change so we're not bad people for reestablishing what our own identity is either yeah, and and also if there are people around you that disagree with you and you feel like a bad person, like you said, it's what you think is best for you. And also the flipping, because I think I hear I love stories like that, but a lot of times I hear it's like, oh, the conservative-minded person goes to the liberal communities. It's like, well, you know what? People in the liberal communities, you need to go to the conservative communities too. Because I hear a lot of times that liberals are um the people that identify that way, they say conservatives are such disgusting hate people. I'm like, have you actually talked to them? I mean, actually talk to them. Like, have you actually had a conversation? Are they as hateful as they are? And if they are, then that's just sucks. You know, that's just sad. And you should just get away then. Yeah. But I think again, we got these biases where it's like we hear in the news that these this group's terrible, this group's terrible. It's like, oh, like where do we like where do we actually stop that? How do we stop letting the media kind of control our biases? I think a lot of it is that where I hear all the time, like, this group is terrible, the other group is terrible. It's this ongoing battle. And it's really yeah. frustrating because. Stop looking at the group and the ideology and look at that person. Because especially mm-hmm. since do we subscribe to groups? I mean, yes, we're groups, but like if you look at me and you think I'm Hispanic, you're not gonna know how I think. And if you subscribe to a certain ideology, you might assume how I think, but I don't, I may not think that way. So it's like, don't look at identities as like this collective where it's like you belong to this identity, which means you think this way. Because again, that's also really discriminatory to look at me and say, Oh, you obviously voted for this person, you obviously think this way. It's like 
Don't I got like- that a lot. I got that a lot too. And I understand that. You're right. And I, you know, Zane, something that makes me think about too is my dad and I will have discussions and he'll say things like, well, both sides are like that. I'm like, that's a thing, dad. I don't really agree with either side. I think, I think, <laughs> I, I think the problem is, is that there are these two sides and a lot of us don't, <laughs> don't feel like that makes sense. And so we're sitting here trying to be like, well, I guess I have to pick, like, maybe we don't. And maybe part of what this discussion is intended for is for us to acknowledge that it's okay for there to be an evolution of what we expect of ourselves and each other. And we don't have to side with this one or that one. We can decide for ourselves that we collectively want something different. And if we can understand each other enough, I really believe that's possible. It might be overly optimistic, but I'm going to continue to believe that because I want better for humanity. No, no, I don't think it's optimistic. I think the reason why you might even think it's optimistic is because people have shut that down so much. Like I've heard that too, where it's like, can people come together and people go, no, we can't. Like we can, you just don't want to. And I get it. It's really hard. We have such clashing, strong opinions. Like it is very difficult, but if we don't work that way, for one, what does that even signal for the new generation that are moving into these roles and like just humanity? But I agree with what you said. I think that, you know, you have a lot of groups that counteract each other and it's just, it's really problematic. And I think that's why you see a lot of people moving towards being free thinkers and independent voters. And yes, that's a reflection of both parties. And you can't look at one and say, they're the problem, they're the problem. It's like, well, you're both a problem because a lot of people are leaving those parties. Everybody's the problem now, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and also I think when you do that, and you just, sometimes I think you subscribe to the ideology. It's like, I'm in this space, I voted for you and I vote for anyone that associates with you. Are you still going to challenge them? Still challenge them, please. Like I get it's the better option, but challenge them because you can't just be satisfied with getting them in the office. You have to actually challenge them because, you know, sometimes these politicians need that challenge and that's exactly what people are for. And that's their job. That is their job to be challenged by the public because that's what a politician does. They're making fairly big decisions for people. And so they need to listen to everyone, maybe not necessarily hateful people, but people are coming again with that intentional conversation just because you don't agree you're still getting a different perspective yeah Um, absolutely so it's all about just respect acknowledge someone's perspective you may not agree and again it's different when they're like being belligerently discussing and rude that's different though we're not talking about that we're talking about people who are coming with this sense of having this conversation and you don't agree and just let it leave it at that and it's also okay if you agree to disagree i feel like people forget that you can do that and you know you've also established a boundary Let's not talk about this again. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. And that's completely reasonable to do as well. And it's um something that my therapist refers to as the window of tolerance, right? It's like, you have to find that spot where it's like, okay, I don't feel like I'm being rejected or demeaned by you. And I also am not going to be unbelievably aligned to how you're thinking about it. And we're going to just be, as you said, in that echo chamber group think mentality where it's like, this is the same, but we can exist together with civility, you really just hit the nail on the head. It is so much about respect. And I think when we have more respect for each other, we can be more accepting of each other, even if we have different perspectives. One of the biggest mistakes I would say that we make is that we see it as very binary. Like we either are this or we aren't this. And so if our ideologies encompass everything over here, then it can't possibly agree with anything over here. And in reality, so many of us, and whether this is politically or just personally and how we identify, it's like the way this conversation started and how it's rounding out. We are not just one thing. 
And we need to acknowledge the importance of that in how we relate to one another and how we allow ourselves to grow or how we limit ourselves from growth by doing that. And if we don't give ourselves the space to question it, then we're going to continue to have these circular conversations that don't really make any progress instead of seeing what we're really capable of when we do pull together as a community of humans. My biggest feeling as of late is just, I want to put the humanity back in humanity. That's my desire for the world. I want people to care about each other again and understand that there is a way to have that harmony and also still, as you've pointed out quite well, challenge each other because you don't just exist in this utopia. You have to create space to have hard conversations that then allow you to feel and experience that growth. Yeah. And I, you know, we really thought COVID was going to be the game changer on a new reflective society. I think it progressed in some areas with different conversations happening with mental health and a lot of things, but it feels like we've gone back on certain things and it's really sad. And I think we also have to remind ourselves of the bad times and be like, we went through COVID and this was we were kind of connected in a way. And even though we were connected through a bad, unfortunate time, if we can connect like that during a really hard time, why can't we do that normally? Mm -hmm. I totally agree with you, Zane. You know, this has been such a wonderful conversation. I feel like there's so much more we could talk about. Maybe this will turn into a multi-episode experience if you're open to it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, of course. That's, it's been so fun. <laughs> That's all for this episode. Zane, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and for sharing your perspective. I'm so fascinated by the fact that you are, you're still in your 20s, correct? <laughs> uh, I'm envious of how much perspective you have at your age. And I hate when people use like at your age, you know, right. I mean this <laughs> in a very complimentary way because my 20s, I was much more disengaged with everything that was happening in the world and finally getting to a place where I can feel more open in being myself and advocating for myself and others is so just fulfilling in and of itself. So I'm so glad that you've reached that point at this time in your life and that you have so much time ahead of you to help create such a positive impact. You've done so much already. And if you want to learn more about what Zane is doing to make the world a better place, Zane, where can they find you? Yeah. And I also do want to acknowledge um, what you said, because, you know, I, I hear people who say that, like, they wish they started sooner. But I was also like, but like, you have to also be mindful of the time. If I were growing up in the time you grew up in, maybe I wouldn't be open because there wasn't a lot of people that were open there wasn't a lot of space or support like there is now. It's important to acknowledge that as well, that some things were out of your control that you didn't about how society just was, you know, unfortunately. Yeah. But anyways, yeah. So you can find me like, you can type my personal name in and then I'm going to come up on hopefully some articles on LinkedIn, Instagram. I try to make myself as accessible as possible. So just my name, you can find me, DM me, message me about anything you want to talk about. You did mention I have a magazine, which is a mental health magazine. If you want to follow it, it's a Positive Vibes magazine. If we do another episode, I can definitely mention a little bit more about it. <laughs> yeah, but absolutely. Find me. And I'm willing to chat about anything. Perfect. I love it. Zane, thank you so much. And we will catch you all next time. 
Thanks for listening to Who the Fuck. And if you like what you hear, share the show with your friends, family, coworkers, or anyone else you think needs a healthy dose of introspection and raw authenticity. Feel free to rate and review wherever you get your podcasts. It's always appreciated. And you can also visit whothefck.com to check out more content. Plus, you can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube at whothefck underscore pod to keep up to date with what's new in my world and for exclusive bonus content. Catch you on the flip side. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric Acid. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast.